0: Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez, in for Julia Chatterley, and this is First Move, and here's your Need to Know. Now boarding in Afghanistan, a second passenger plane arrives at Kabul Airport. We are live for you from the city. China called President Biden and Xi. hold talks as economic and geopolitical relations remain tense, and COVID strategy. More than 100 million American workers face new vaccine rules. It is Friday, so let's make a move. Happy Friday, everyone. Let's start the show this hour looking at U.S. futures. The last time I looked, they were slightly higher, and they are. Dow futures up almost half a percent for the Dow. Similar picture with the Nasdaq and S&P. Now, the producer price index jumped 0.7% last month. That basically indicates that high inflation is likely to remain for a while. We'll talk in a minute with Matt uh, Egan about that. But in the last 12 months through August, PPI rose. 8.3%. The index, of course, is a measure of inflation before goods and services reach the end consumer. Meanwhile, we have a look as concerns grow, of course, about the Delta variant's impact on the economic recovery. President Joe Biden yesterday announcing sweeping new vaccine mandates. Take a listen.
1: The Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers.
0: Now, we'll talk about what that means, of course, for the U.S. economy as well as for companies in the United States. But first, let me show you the stock markets in Europe. Stocks really advancing, as you can see there, day after the European Central Bank kept interest rates unchanged, CAC at two tenths of percent, uh, FTSE 100, three tenths of percent, Zetridax uh, ro- hovering roughly around the, t- uh, the time. But the ECB decided to slow the pace of bond purchases under its pandemic emergency program. In Asia, quick look at how it's doing, all closing higher with talks between Mr. Biden and President Xi Jinping adding to the positive mood. It was their first call in seven months. As you can see, green arrows right across the board. Now to our next story, I want to take you to the main drivers. The U.S. is about to mark 20 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And right now, tributes are being paid at the New York Stock Exchange. we been watching their minute of silence at the New York Stock Exchange, really recalling the moment when a plane hit the second World Trade Center tower. Um, of course, it will be marking that moment, that day, 20 years ago, throughout the day, of course, uh, in the US and at the New York Stock Exchange. Let's get more. CNN's diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, and his team were in Kabul when the attacks took place. Nick is there again, 20 years on. And Nick, give us viewers a sense of what it was like on that day 20 years ago, and what, if anything, has changed in Kabul since then?
2: Back then it was impossible to know what was going on in New York and Washington and Philadelphia where uh, everything happened. What we could see here was was really, uh, you know, the Taliban slowly get their, their their thinking around the fact that there was something that they were going to be held responsible for that was of absolutely huge moment, and this was potentially going to impact them. Remember the te- the Taliban had banned televisions, so even though we were in a hotel that had televisions um, we couldn 't see what was happening in new york and, and none of the Taliban uh, offices here in Kabul had te- had television, so they weren 't looking at it as well so uh, there was that sort of surreal feeling of of something huge happening in the world that you can't really see and and fully appreciate. I remember talking to people in Kabul at that time. They were very frightened and worried about what could happen next. One of the Conversations that, that stands out with me today was with a man who, you know, when we asked them, you know, it's possible that the United States might come here uh, to take revenge against al-Qaeda, to, to get al-Qaeda's leadership. You know, he said, well, the Soviets came here to Afghanistan and we broke their country into 16 pieces. If the United States come here, we'll break their country into 52 pieces, meaning the different states. Um, I, I think at that moment, none of us really realize what could happen? How the 20 years could play out? Kabul is a completely different place today. Um, many of the tall buildings here didn't exist before. Um, the city has so much more electricity. The population is much bigger now as well. But it is still a country that doesn't have, uh, you, you know, full control over itself. If you are the last government, couldn't control the, ha- the whole of Afghanistan. The Taliban, it seems, you know, that's their aim. But it. it, it from where they stand today, that's a very, very big stretch and a big ask.
0: And Nick, in the last few hours, we saw a second Qatar Airways passenger flight arrive in Kabul airport today. Uh, I'm reading that the flight, this flight is expected to take off uh, from Kabul. Do we know whether passengers will be allowed to depart? Because I've been speaking to so many people on CNN here on our show throughout the whole week. People say they've got the documentation they've got visas uh, and they not and they haven't been able to actually leave
2: Yeah, and we know that 113 of those with the right paperwork uh, were able to get out yesterday. 43 Canadians, more than 30 Americans, 13 Brits, uh, Germans, Ukrainians were able to get out. And and we have been able to see that people were boarding that uh, Qatar Airlines charter flight uh, at the airport uh, this afternoon. We know that it brought in aid. Uh, People have been seen boarding it. Um, We do not have the details about who's boarding. I think we can probably reasonably uh, guess that the plane will do what it did yesterday, which was fly to Doha, and perhaps then we might get a fuller read about who was on board. We know that yesterday Secretary Blinken, uh, uh, the United States Secretary of State, said that uh, he welcomed the Taliban's action in in sort of facilitating the flight yesterday to take off, that he's been in contact through regional partners to make sure that this process can continue, that the United States has been in contact with Americans on the ground and those with the right paperwork to get out so the expectation is that people with the right paperwork will get out and i think the expectation is later today we may learn a little bit more about another group that have been able to do just that but at the moment it's uh, the details we just do not have isa
0: yeah do keep us posted nick robertson for us there in kabul afghanistan thanks very much nick And a programming note for you, join CNN as we, of course, honor the victims of the 9-11 attacks. 9-11, 20 years later, airs this Saturday. Our coverage starts at 8 a.m. Eastern. That is one in the afternoon in London, right here only on CNN. Also on the agenda right now for the U.S. president is China. Mr. Biden spoke with Xi Jinping on Thursday evening, only their second phone call, believe it or not, in seven months. Ivan Watson has the details. Uh, And Ivan, I'm sure they had plenty to discuss. Uh, What more do we know uh, they actually discussed?
1: We have very few details about what specifically they talked about during this 90-minute phone call, Isa, We have the adjectives uh, describing the tone of the conversation from both governments, and those are somewhat similar with White House officials saying that this was candid. Uh, it was a broad discussion between two people who are familiar with each other. Uh, and here's a, a sense of what the Chinese foreign ministry had to say uh, about these two leaders' conversation.
2: The two countries should look ahead and demonstrate strategic courage and political resolve and bring China U.S. relations back on the right track and stable development as soon as possible for the good of the people in both countries and around the world. Now, I just
1: direct you to the tone of that diplomat statement there. That's Zhao Lijian, he's a spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry who engages in what some describe as wolf warrior diplomacy. Just in recent weeks, He's described on his own Twitter account the U.S. as the biggest bully on the planet. Uh, And the White House is arguing that they are unable to get much done with their Chinese counterparts because there's an awful lot of aggressive kind of rhetoric going back and forth. The areas where both governments disagree are many. You've got both navies kind of jockeying, shadowing each other in the contested waters of the South China Sea. You've had the U.S. impose sanctions uh, on China for alleged human rights abuses here in Hong Kong, in China's Xinjiang region, uh, China accusing the U.S. of meddling in its internal affairs. There are just a whole host of areas where they disagree. Uh, officials like Zhao Lijian, that, that foreign ministry diplomat, uh, almost celebrating the U.S.'s humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years. The White House is arguing that it wanted to establish uh, guidelines and parameters uh, for future negotiations with China uh, To ensure that these two, uh, the world's two largest economies cannot accidentally veer into conflict, but can instead uh, engage in competition. And from what we're hearing initially, it sounds like the Chinese government is reciprocating in kind. So I think the headline is at least these two leaders are talking. Issa? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like you said, like you clearly laid out, hard to see how this one phone call could really help a relation that that remains so deeply adversarial. Ivan Watson there for us. Thanks very much, Ivan. Good to see you. Now, the US has unveiled strict new vaccine mandates, as I told you at the top of the show, for up to two thirds of American workers, those employed by the federal government, and that major companies will have to get the shot a weekly test or lose their job. President Biden told unvaccinated Americans, our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us. Jeremy, Di- Jeremy Diamond's on the story for us. Uh, Jeremy, how is um, President Biden's aggressive COVID strategy being received, not just by, by the Americans, by the public, but also by the Republican Party here?
3: Well, listen, uh, you said this is a polarized country. This is a polarizing uh, decision. And uh, the reaction... Uh, has followed suit. Uh, we have seen praise from a lot of medical experts for what the president uh, announcing that these steps to require uh, I- employees of uh, private businesses of more than 100 employees be vaccinated or test regularly, uh, as well as this uh, requirement that federal workers and employees of federal contractors must be, be vaccinated with no testing option. Public health experts say that this is, these are the kinds of steps uh, that are perhaps a little uh, bit overdue, but that will certainly help uh, to slow the spread and to. To bend the curve of this pandemic now on the right side of the aisle you are seeing already some criticism some heated criticism uh, from some republicans not all republicans to be sure but certainly some of those who are uh uh, uh you know among the party's uh up and coming stars including governor Ke- chrissy uh Noem of south dakota calling this unconstitutional rule you also have governor greg abbott of texas saying that this is an assault on private businesses, and there's no doubt that this is something that is going to face legal challenge. But when you listen to most of the legal experts who have looked at this uh, and how the president is planning to implement this uh, regulation, particularly the one on private businesses of 100 employees or more, uh, legal experts seem to say so far that the president's uh, decision, while perhaps controversial, does appear to be on solid legal ground Uh, and so now of course will be the implementation phase of this and we will see how much impact it can have Uh, as we know the the we have watched over the last couple of months as uh coronavirus cases in the united states have really been surging because of the spread of this delta variant Uh, so how much impact can this have now uh, that the president is implementing this in september
0: And and Jeremy, you're talking about implementation, but what about enforcement? How exactly will this be enforced? Do we know that yet?
3: Uh, Well, listen, this is a rule that is still being written right now, but it is going to be finalized in the coming days or weeks. uh, And it's going to be implemented by OSHA, uh, the the, uh, Health and Safety uh, Administration of the federal government, which has implemented other coronavirus related uh, rules on private businesses in the past. Most of those so far have been focused on hospitals and requirements for vaccines and testing uh, on that front. Uh, but this is a, a health and safety administration uh, that does implement workplace safety regulations across the country. And so they would be responsible for implementing this. Uh, how how difficult it will be to enforce something that could affect as many as 80 million Americans in these private businesses remains to be seen. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, the hope is here that a lot of businesses will move forward with this willingly. We have already seen a lot of these large, large companies like Amazon, Google, for example, uh, implementing these kinds of vaccine or test requirements. Uh, and so the hope is that this can encourage uh, other businesses, smaller businesses to follow suit. Uh, and if not, uh, you know, to be able to say, look, we our hands are tied. We're doing this because this is uh, now a federal uh, regulation. And keep in mind, already three quarters of uh, American adults Uh, have gotten at least one dose. So it really is about getting uh, to that final uh, 25% of the public that has been, uh, of of adults that have been resistant uh, to get this shot.
0: Jeremy Diamond for us at the White House. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Well, let me bring you those U.S. producer price increases now that I mentioned. And the sign, of course, the concern is that high inflation will persist for a while. Supply chains remain stretched as the pandemic drags on. Matt Egan joins me now. And Matt, looking at those numbers that came out, what, about 45 minutes ago, inflation clearly still a huge concern here.
4: Yeah, Issa, that's right. I mean, after a sizzling summer, inflation in the United States, it's still red hot. We learned that producer prices... In the month of August, soared by 8.3% year over year. That's an acceleration from July when we saw producer prices up 7.8%. It's also the fifth straight month of a record for this metric, which goes back to 2010. Um, The good news is that if you look month over month, producer prices were up 0.7%. That's a tad hotter than expected, but it's actually a deceleration from July when those prices were up 1%. Uh, You know, I think big picture, this shows that Uh, Inflation is still an issue because some of those producer prices, the the prices that are charged to um, businesses and some customers, that's going to get passed along to American consumers. Uh, The question is how much will get passed along. And we're going to find out early next week when the even more closely watched consumer price index gets released. And today's numbers suggest that that may still be a very hot number. Um, This does put some pressure on the Federal Reserve. It it puts the Fed in a tough spot because on the one hand, inflation is clearly an issue. officials admit that uh, inflation is uncomfortably hot. But also the U.S. economy has slowed down in recent weeks and months because of the pandemic. So it does put the Fed in a tough spot as to what they do about interest rates and more importantly, what they do about their quantitative easing bond buying pro- program, ISA.
0: Matt Egan for us there. Thanks very much, Matt. And still to come here on First Move, as President Biden unveils new rules for testing at schools, I speak to the bioengineering company at the forefront of those efforts. And an electric submarine mapping the seabed in a bid to combat climate change. We'll be in that story next. Welcome back, everyone. Let's have a look at U.S. futures. The last time I looked, they looked Rather upbeat. So far, so good. That's after the producer price index last month increased 0.7% from July. This, of course, as supply chain disruptions keep squeezing those production costs high. I spoke to Matt Egan just about that and what that means for inflation. Meantime, President Biden's new vaccine requirements now could apply to as many as 100 million Americans. That's close to two thirds of the U.S. workforce. Joining me now is David Kelly, Chief Global Strategy at JP Morgan Asset Management. David, great to have you on the show. Happy Friday. I want to kick off, if I may, with what we heard from President Biden—a pretty aggressive, multi-layered approach from him. Of course, not just to to save lives, but also fight for the economy. What stood out to you?
5: Well, I think the the mandate on uh, private uh, employers—I think that that OSHA rule is very important because I think uh, you know a lot of employers probably feel like they need the backing of the federal government or a reason to do this. I think most employers want to have a vaccine mandate. I think most employees would like to know that their coworkers are vaccinated, but they need somebody to give them the backbone to do this. So I think this is uh, is very useful for companies in trying to enforce vaccine mandates, because that is actually how I think a lot of companies are gonna get everybody back into the office.
0: So on the whole, I mean, from the companies we've been hearing on the show here and on CNN, the majority of the large companies are actually on board. Uh, Do you think those smaller companies, do you think that they will join suit as well? Or do you think we'll be seeing potentially lawsuits here?
5: I think think both. I think there will be certain uh, people who dislike vaccine mandates and Mm. and, uh, for for various reasons. But in general, I think businesses, look, we all need to get back get past this this yeah. pandemic, this is, this is not a difficult question. There is a vaccine which has been designed by scientists to, to protect us. There's a virus designed by nature to kill us. This should not be a close call. Um, and I think the fact that it's got full FDA approval gives the, the White House some backing to make this a mandate. So this, there's a limit to what the federal government can do, but I think what the federal yeah. government is proposing to do does help American business get back to business.
0: Yeah. And, and some even wonder why this wasn't done sooner. But th- there is somewhat of a conundrum, David. I mean, you have a large group of the population who perhaps who don't want to get vaccinated and then you have a tight labor market. Do you think at all that people will opt out of the labor market or even go to smaller companies? Those with less than 100 employees. What do you think? That, what kind of changes do you think we'll be seeing here?
5: No, I think for the most part the the you know, I think this vaccine hesitancy because there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think yeah. a lot of people don't really understand it. But when it actually comes between you and your wallet, then you have to make a choice. And I think that when people actually have to seriously study this thing because they have to make a choice about the vaccine, I think a lot of people will just choose to be vaccinated and grumble about it. But ultimately that's how we're gonna get past this this pandemic.
0: Let's look ahead and hopefully pass this pandemic as you say, David. Where do you see the challenges for the US economy? I mean I'm of course, the, the August jobs report was pretty, pretty glum and pretty disappointing. So where, where are the challenges?
5: Well, I think actually the challenges may have eased a bit, because if you think about it, going into the summer, the biggest risk was we were going to overheat. Uh, we were we were you know, bouncing back very strongly with a lot of fiscal stimulus. Now we've hit some speed bumps here because of the Delta variant. In some ways, the small silver lining in this is it's actually taken enough steam out of the economy that I don't think we're going to overheat. The big question remaining though is is fiscal policy. Um, will they be able to get through uh, this infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill, the debt ceiling increase? That's all very important. If all of that goes through, though, I think the economy will reaccelerate in the fourth quarter. We'll be heading to close to full employment um, early next year. Inflation will be a little bit higher than it was before the pandemic, but I don't expect break breakout inflation. I just think it'll, you know, we will be looking at two percent plus as opposed to two percent mm. minus on inflation.
0: On, on the labor shortage front, though, how, how long do you expect this to last? What's your projection here, David?
5: No, oh, I think it's, it's, it's going to last for years because we are, the baby boom is retiring in enormous numbers. Um, yep. Immigration, we knew, used, used to have a million people come into this country. That's been decimated. And we're just chronically short of skilled workers. Um, and so, you know, unless demand eases off, that's going to continue for a long time here.
0: Such a good point on immigration there. David Kelly, the Chief Global Strategy at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Thanks very much, David. Have a good Friday. Do stay with us. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell in remembrance of tomorrow's 20th anniversary of 9-11. The families of the two New York Stock Exchange members, you can see their pictures there, who died on that day ringing the opening bell there. And as the exchange pays tribute to the victims and heroes of 9-11, if we look at how shares are doing today, just up fractionally, up half of 1%. We've seen new data on producers' price indicate really inflation could persist, the PPI jumped 8.3 percent from a year ago, and that's the biggest increase since 2011. Shares of a firm soaring after the buy now, pay later company reported blockbuster earnings. Revenue jumped more than 70 percent in the latest quarter. Endo stock is also surging after the a drug maker agreed to pay 50 million dollars to resolve lawsuits over its sale and marketing of opioids. But take two interactive is down, as you can see, after the video game producer delayed the release of new versions of Grand Theft Auto. They're down to just almost 2.5%. Now, on Thursday, President Biden unveiled six new measures to combat COVID-19. One of them was keeping schools open. The other was mass testing. Ginkgo Bioworks is involved in both those things. The bioengineering company tests children in schools right across the country. It has also partnered with the CDC to track COVID variants at three major airports. Joining me is Jason Kelly, the CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. Jason, great to have you on the show. Let me first get your thoughts on the president's COVID strategy. Is this what you were expecting to hear?
6: Yeah, it it was. And I I think it was also, you know, very strong leadership being shown. Um, You know, I, I think there's this challenge in the country right now where parents are insisting that schools stay open but what you're seeing, you know, my, my sister lives down in, in Tennessee. So I think this is not a political thing wherever you are in the country. You know, my nephew's been in school three weeks. He's been quarantined two of those weeks. So, so you're, you're seeing parents say, I wanted the schools in person, but I'm also dealing with kids in quarantine. And the president's saying, I can fix that problem with testing. Uh, and that, that's really what a lot, of, a lot of the speech was last night. It was great to see.
0: And what does that mean in reality, Jason, for your business in terms of supply chains, in terms of demand? Yeah.
6: Yeah, so, so the two ways that you use testing to keep kids in school are one, concept called test to stay. So, you know, if your student comes, you know, your, your child comes back with a, pop, you know, close contact to COVID-19 is quarantined for 10 days. Instead of staying home for 10 days, test every morning with a rapid test. If it comes up negative, go to school. So no disruption uh, to the schooling. And the president just announced last night that they're going to use the Defense Production Act to buy $2 billion more of these lateral flow tests to make them available. And then secondly, and Gingo's the largest provider of this in the country, universal classroom testing. So every week, every student, you do a five minute test in the classroom, you collect all those tests as a group, so it's anonymized, the classroom gets tested, and you find out, if, is there a student in that classroom who's positive and they don't know it? And the reason that's important is before they spread it to five to eight other people, which is the case with Delta variant, you, you find out who they are and you send them home. And, and that helps prevent spread in schools. So you have less need to quarantine. And those are the tool, two testing uh, programs. And the president's given $10 billion to the states uh, for that type of classroom testing.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there is a whole logistics and politics, isn't it, of, of getting a positive test. And, that, and that's crucial.
6: Yeah. And, and I think what, what, what parents are realizing is it, to keep schools open, you have to go into this with a, with a mindset of, all right, quarantines are going to happen. How do we make them not annoying? And, and the answer is, have less of them and have ways to, to go back to school, even if you show up as, as a close contact. That is the world we're living. In. I have two kids. That's the world we're living in this next two semesters. If your school's not doing that, call and tell them to do it. And the money, you know, President Biden said last night, it, that money's there for every school in the country, all 50 states. Uh, and so if you're seeing too much quarantine in your school, you know, this is the way out of it.
0: It kind of begs the question, Jason, why hasn't this happened sooner? I mean, this has been happening here in the UK for some time, with yes. my nephews are being tested on, twice per week for several months now. Why is it taking yep. this long to get here?
6: So, yeah, I, I think a lot of the learnings have come from, from the UK and how things are, are, are working. there. I think it's an amazing program. And, and frankly, it's the size and scope of the country. You did see certain yeah. states like Massachusetts do this last year, but-, but you know, this fall, it is available in every school in the United States of America. So, so you know, late to the party, but it, it, you are correct, it works. Uh, and so, so parents should demand it.
0: Uh, what are the challenges? I mean, throughout this pandemic, you have really been working closely with schools, uh, not just to open them, but to keep them open. What, what, what have you learned? What have been the real challenges for you, Jason?
6: Yeah, so I think one of the challenges is this is a new thing right? You didn't need to do yeah. this, uh, you know, for the flu, for example. Um, but this rate that COVID spreads, which is more like, ch- you know, for someone like me who had chicken box before there was a vaccine for it, right? It spreads like chicken So it's, you, you know, you have to keep a lid on it. Um, and, and that just helping people being educating people about that. And then it's a way, it's not like a the good thing about the testing, you know, I know there's a lot of debates about math in the United States, for example, okay, is that gonna affect teaching and all these things? The testing is, it's a nothing. It's a five minute, you know, out of your day thing. I, I think people don't realize that when they think testing, they think, oh, there's something going way up my nose or I'm in the hospital. These newer technologies like rapid engine tests and the classroom pooling, they're, they're designed to be you know, not annoying. And, and they're a new product class and, and people haven't seen them before. And so they just got to get familiar. Once schools start testing it, everyone loves it. Right, so, so so that that's a, that's been the biggest challenge, just getting people familiar with something new, and I, I think that's always the case, um, you know, whatever it is.
0: Jason, do keep us posted how you get on uh, with the testing. Jason Kellen, the CEO of Ginkgo BioWorks, thanks very much, Jason. Good to see you. Yeah. Now in France, proof of vaccination is now required in many venues nationwide. President Macron launched the Health Pass at the start of summer, if you remember, as cases started rising again. The move has led to weeks of large protests. Could this work though? In the United States, many are asking. CNN's Melissa Bell
7: reports. It was the push back in July that made all the
2: difference. We are extending the use of the health pass to push as many of you as possible to go and get vaccinated.
7: Within 24 hours, almost a million appointments had been booked. With the health pass, which shows whether you've been vaccinated or have had a PCR test within 72 hours, suddenly needed to enter restaurants, museums, cafes and bars, and now extended to employees of any business that serves the public.
8: They say you have the choice, but you don't really. It's either you get vaccinated or you pay for your test. So, (laughs) is it really a choice?
7: Anaïs says she wasn't going to get vaccinated, like 60% of those polled during France's second lockdown in December. For a long time, the United States was ahead of France in terms of the proportion of the population that had received at least one dose. Then in July, Macron took a gamble. Just as vaccination centres were emptying, as vaccine hesitancy kicked in, and French hospitals were being overrun by the Delta variant.
2: He took the risk to say... I will make the life of the non-vaccinated very difficult, which is a very, very, very dangerous statement.
7: Protests followed. One of the biggest came on July 31st, just a couple of weeks after Macron made his speech. Across France, 204,000 people took to the streets, according to the Interior Ministry. But for all the noise, that very same day, more than double the number of people were quietly getting an injection. The reason, says this French lawmaker, that most people understood that the alternative was yet another lockdown. It was saying to the French, she says, that if you're vaccinated, you can live like you used to. This health pass will give you your freedom back. Now France has one of the best vaccination rates in the world, over 62%. And despite the spread of the Delta variant, hospital admissions have gone down. The Delta variant goes faster, but enough people are vaccinated. It's sort of a balance between being more contagious and, and meeting more people who are immunized. Macron's gamble depended on his being able to act at a national level with strong executive powers and a solid parliamentary majority, none of which Joe Biden has on his side. But the French model does show that with some encouragement, even the vaccine hesitant can be convinced that in the extraordinary circumstances of a pandemic, individual liberties must end where collective responsibility begins.
0: Elisabeth there with that report. And coming up after the break, there's no future on Earth without understanding our oceans, says the mapping company armed with smart submarines. We'll delve deeper in two and a half minutes. That is it. And now we are going beneath the sea to better understand how we can combat climate change. As our world experiences more extreme weather, we've seen this year the exploration company Bedrock says we can improve climate modelling by making better maps of the oceans up to 50 times more detailed than currently publicly available maps. To do this, it's using autonomous electric-powered submarines. Bedrock says its technology will speed up the development of offshore wind power. And there's plenty, of course, of ocean to explore. Only 30% of our world is land. The company says only a tiny portion of our oceans are mapped to 100-metre resolution. Anthony Di is CEO and founder of Bedrock, co-founder of Bedrock, and he joins me now. Anthony, great to have you here. Explain to our viewers right around the world exactly how you map the world's oceans, because there's a lot to map.
9: There is a lot to map indeed. Uh, So right now we focus on trying to build scalable ways to basically move the needed sensors or sonars around the ocean as quickly as humanly possible. So part of that is developing a uh, AUV-based solution that is reliable, autonomous, 100% electric that we can deploy very, very quickly from any beach, marina, or other infrastructure that may exist out there. And the other part of that is being able to get that data into the hands of the people that need to make these decisions. Where should I put this turbine? Where should I lay these cables? Very, very quickly. And right now, unfortunately, it takes quite a bit of time to do.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my kind of obvious question. As you laid it out for us, first of all, is there any kind of environmental damage as you try and map out, obviously, the sea? Uh, and also, how how long would it take? This this would this is a long term project. How how do we, where would you yeah. even start? <laughs>
9: Uh, I mean, right now we start, with, uh, we start with our commercial clients, right? So we start with offshore wind farms. Um, and uh, the, the easiest answer to try and explain how we do this quickly um, is we need to dramatically scale up the rate at which we can do this for uh, most people in general. The, the marine mammal impacts of general or traditional surveying are very real. Um, unfortunately, we we do rely on sound a lot to do most of the work within the ocean because of the restrictions of moving uh, or sensing information through water. And so we, we currently right now, all of our sensors that we use or our sonars that we use are above 200 kilohertz, which do not impact marine mammals in any way, shape or form. And so this is a massive improvement to the way that this work is done today, not just by the, the reality or the, the, the system that we've developed that allows it to happen much quicker, but it also mm. just has a, a completely different impact on marine mammals.
0: And as you're talking, we were looking, I don't know if, if Bob, my producer, can put back that electric submarine that's kind of mapping it out, uh, to mapping out the ocean. But, you know, once you have this data, Anthony, what do you do with it? What are you intending to show to companies or to actually governments here?
9: Yeah, so uh, there's multiple different data sets that are critical to understand the geology of the seafloor to move these projects along faster. One of them is just bathymetry, so being able to get a shape of the seafloor. Another is uh, imaging, so being able to use sonar to get actual pictures of what lies on the seafloor itself, as well as an understanding of what the geologic condition of the seafloor is at the surface. And just below the surface. So, the many different layers that exist underneath just what we see. And so, putting all of those things together gives us a comprehensive understanding of what the seafloor is. And we use and are just launching Mosaic to be able to get that data into the hands mm. of people much, much faster than it's done today.
0: And, you know, we have seen, our viewers have seen right around the world, like extreme and prolonged uh, kind of weather incidents this year that's been charged, I think it's fair to say, by, by, by climate change. Hurricane Ida, extreme flooding, if I remember, in, in, in Germany. Have governments, Anthony, been reaching out to you, to you and to your company to try and find solutions to mitigate this and hoping to use this data?
9: Yeah, I can't speak directly to exactly the, the types of people that have been reaching out but i can say the response has been overwhelming i think everyone globally right now is rallying around the fact that the oceans are a critical ecosystem to the future of life on this planet and understanding that in a dramatically quicker way than we are doing right now is, is completely necessary for us to be able to to live here for very long periods of time and so the, the short answer is yes <laughs>
0: Hopefully next time you can give us a tiny bit more, Anthony DiMario, with a very appropriate surname. I have to say, co-founder of Bedrock. Thanks very much, Anthony. Best of luck.
9: Thank you, Issa. Uh, Appreciate it. See you.
0: Now, take care. After the break, no more games. China's tough new crackdown on gaming sparks intense debate. Can you get hooked on this? That is next. Now, it is always fun to open a new electronic device, but usually that also means figuring out how to get rid of your old one. And that's become really a global challenge. E-waste is the world's fastest growing form of garbage by 2050, estimated to total more than 122 million tons a year. But as Anna Stewart shows us, a plant in Dubai is aiming to recycle it, turning electronic trash into treasure.
8: This is it, the end of the road for old electronics. Or not quite. So this is
10: an example of e-waste. All these are uh, microwaves, laptops, uh, phones, everything goes from here. This is the start of the process.
8: A new lease of life to unwanted devices, cables, phones, printers go in, all chopped up. Out comes all sorts of materials, like new, ready to be used in manufacturing once more.
10: These materials are coming from this phone and we'll be we going to
8: make a new phone like this. EnviroServe collects e-waste for more than 10 countries across the Middle East and Africa. Once in the Dubai facility, devices needing a quick fix get repaired. Anything broken has their batteries removed, gets torn apart and is separated based on what they're made of. We each produce an average of 7 kilograms of electronic waste per year. That's the equivalent to almost 4 laptops per person on the planet every year. And is expected to double by 2050. Getting rid of all this stuff isn't easy. First is the health risk of being exposed to toxic materials. And if you chuck it in landfill, then all these valuable items just go to waste.
10: The e-waste going to the landfill is not a solution. It's just parked, idling for the future. For when, nobody knows.
8: Which is why EnviroServe is determined to provide an alternative. For now, they are currently operating at only 7% capacity. But eventually, they hope to process 39,000 tonnes of e-waste every year. We are not at full capacity, definitely not. But we are ready for the future, so we can do more and more. Around the world, less than 20% of electronic waste is properly recycled, according to the global e-waste monitor.
2: And currently, only, only 10 billion US dollar of you know, raw materials are being recovered from e-waste. And nearly 50 billion are not recovered at all. So there is a big opportunity out there.
8: Electronic waste, an example of how one man's trash is another man's treasure. Anna Stewart,
0: CNN. And finally, increasingly tough rules in China that limit the playing of video games among minors have sparked intense debate. They're dividing players, parents, as well as health experts. Chrissy Lou Stout looks close at so-called gaming disorder and what that exactly means
10: playtime is pretty much over for China's young online gamers. Beijing has banned online gamers under 18 from playing on weekdays and limited their play to only three hours on most weekends. China's media watchdog says the rules are necessary to combat gaming addiction. It's a common concern among gamers and parents the world over. Can video games be addictive? In 2018, the World Health Organization introduced gaming disorder as a new mental health condition. Signs include impaired control over gaming, gaming taking precedence over other interests, continuation of gaming despite negative effects, and impaired social functioning and distress. Gaming disorder is a disorder of control, so the person cannot hold on to the amount of time for gaming and It keeps increasing. It can cause several health problems, physical as well as mental. According to the WHO, the characteristics of gaming disorder are very similar to substance use disorders and gambling disorder. But not everyone agrees. According to a 2020 study co-authored by American psychologist Chris Ferguson, there is a lack of consensus on the issue of video game addiction. About 60.8 percent of scholars surveyed agreed pathological gaming could be a mental health problem, but 30.4 percent were skeptical.
11: It's an issue that scholars have really been arguing about for probably
6: 30 years. And what has happened is there are all these questions about it that are unresolved in the scholarly community, like even as basic as is this a real thing?
10: For years, China, the world's largest video games market, has worried about the impact of games, blaming it for rising rates of nearsightedness, and setting up boot camps that use military drills to try to kick the habit. And China now wants to combat gaming addiction by restricting how long young players can game online. How effective is this? Very drastic public health measure. Gaming disorder is only present in a very small minority of all people who game. Because gaming by itself is not always harmful. Mental health experts say the question isn't how many hours a child spends gaming, but whether excessive play is a sign of a deeper mental health issue.
11: If you just take away the games,
6: you leave them with the pre-existing condition. So it doesn't really fix anything. Uh, it kind of just takes away the thing that they were using to distract themselves from their suffering.
10: <laughs> Experts advise parents to monitor their kids and focus on harm reduction rather than unplugging entirely yes. and missing out on the occasional thrilling fight to the finish. Christy Lou Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. I can't believe I got
0: first place. That was a- in my house. That's all I can tell you. Let us know your thoughts on the show. You can uh, tweet me at ESACNN or, of course, at First Move. Thanks very much for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Do stay right here with CNN. Have a great weekend. Bye bye.
11: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.